invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to begin our study today with verse 29 going through verse 36. Just uh, to recap a little bit, um, recall that this uh, whole section began with Jesus uh, casting out a demon of muteness and restoring speech and uh, in the parallel Gospels also hearing to a man that was uh, both deaf and mute. And as he did this, the crowds uh, around him, some of them were unbelieving and uh, challenging. And some of them accused him of being able to do this miracle by uh, the power of Beelzebul, uh, which is, uh, in their uh, verbiage, was the prince of demons. But uh, we understand that that is Satan. And so what they were saying is, you're doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus answered that argument. And he talked about the houses divided and kingdoms divided. And uh, if uh, Satan were actually casting out uh, his own spirits, um, that house would not stand And he goes on to answer the argument that he was uh, acting uh, by demonic power and casting out demons. How absurd is that? And then he moves on to a second argument that was raised by some in the crowd, and that's the one that we're going to look at this morning, uh, who were demanding of him a sign. Um, You're saying all these things, you're doing all these things, we need some proof. We want to see evidence that you are uh, who you say you are and that your message is coming from God. And so it's in that uh, response that we're seeing this morning as we look in beginning in verse 29 as Jesus answers this second accusation or second demand. Verse 29, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. As I read the passage, one of the questions that was in my mind is, what is it that made this group of people, this generation of people, uh, these uh probably Jewish leaders, although they're not identified as such in this paragraph. What made them wicked? 
or evil, or as uh, Matthew puts it, unbelieving, because they wanted a sign. And, you know, if you look at some of our studies uh, as Christians today, I mean, we have whole courses in apologetics. That's a fancy word for answering the argument. And we have whole classes that are designed to answer questions like, is the Bible believable? Can it be believed to be true? Did Jesus uh, live and uh, act and do the things that He said He would do? Is there evidence outside of Scripture to support this? Um, there are studies that, that Christians have done for decades and centuries even that seek to provide logical or rational evidence or proof for the truthful claims of the Christian message and of the Scriptures. It brings into question all of that. You know, and it makes us ask, is that legitimate? Or is that also coming from some kind of uh, wickedness or evil heart? What is it that makes the request of these Jewish leaders evil because they wanted a sign from Jesus? Well, I think we're going to see that as we move through here, that what was behind their question was something far more than just a desire for some evidence or for some information. But Jesus says to them, and He gives them two examples. <laughs> he says, No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. Now, Luke does not record this particular statement, but Matthew in chapter 12, verse 40, in the parallel account of Matthew, Matthew records that Jesus also said, for uh, the sign of Jonah is that he was in the belly of the great fish, or the sea monster, for three days and three nights. And then he goes on to say, and when he went to Nineveh, the people of Nineveh repented at his message. And so Matthew adds a, a very significant ingredient to the sign by relating it to Jonah's time uh, that was spent in the belly of the great, uh, of the great sea monster. Now, I'm sure that most of us know the story, but let me just recap it for you in the event that uh, some facts have slipped your mind. Remember that Nineveh was a very wicked city, a wicked kind of uh, area. And God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach to them that judgment is coming. I want you to warn them that judgment is coming, and that I am going to deal with them. Now, if you're not familiar with the, um, the behavior and the culture of the Ninevites and the, and the people of that particular kingdom, they are, without question, some of the most hideous, wicked, evil people that have ever populated the face of the earth. Um, I'm not being trite when I say that their treatment of prisoners and enemies makes ISIS look like Sunday school children. 
they were horribly, horribly wicked people. The things that they would do to other human beings are just beyond our wildest imagination. And even within their own culture, the decadence and the moral decline of their own culture was such that, that their hideousness was just, finally God had had enough. And Jonah is really kind of hoping that Nineveh will go down the tubes. I mean, he wants God to rain fire and brimstone and just obliterate this people. And he's uh, concerned <laughs> that if he goes and preaches, knowing God, God might have mercy on them. So he doesn't want to do this. And so when the message comes to him, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them that judgment is coming. Jonah goes in the opposite direction. He goes down, he gets on a ship, and he heads in the other direction. Now, as he's going along, uh, a storm comes up at sea, and the people on the ship believe it's going to go down. Uh, The waves are about to sink them. And Jonah finally fesses up, and he comes up on the, you know, on the top of the ship, and he says, um, I'm the problem, throw me overboard, and everything will be fine. And I'm sure Jonah's thinking to himself, well, I, I'd hope to escape and go the other direction, but if I die at sea, that's, uh, that's the next best thing. At least I don't have to go to Nineveh. So, <laughs> little did he know, you know. So, uh, he finally persuades them to throw him overboard, which they did. And the scripture says that he was swallowed by this great sea creature. Uh, and uh, Jonah gets swallowed up. I, you know, just can you imagine this? I mean, here you're in this horrible storm. You get thrown into the water. You think, well, this is it. You know, I'm going to be dead in just a couple minutes. And then to add insult to injury, this this huge a sea creature comes and swallows you. And you land in the belly of this thing. And doggone it, there's air in there. <laughs> you know, and he's not dead. So, here he is in the, in the belly of this great sea creature. And um, he stays there. you got bound to have lost track of time, but we know that it was three days and three nights. And then eventually, this fish says, oh, I've had enough of Jonah too. So he comes up near the the beach and he vomits him out. And there's Jonah on the beach, covered in slime and digestive juices and uh, all of this crud, you know. And uh, he opens his eyes and it's like, he's looking toward Nineveh. It's like, I can't win. I've got to go. There's just, you know, he's just miserable. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to look this up, I know, because some of you are going to want to know it, so I'll try to do that for you this week. But there, there is an account uh, somewhere off the coast of Australia of a whaler that fell overboard and was swallowed by a whale. And when they caught the whale and, and opened it up, they found this guy alive. Except the problem is the uh, digestive enzymes of the whale had bleached him white. You know, white hair, white skin, everything is white. Like, I mean, white. You know, so uh, that adds a little intrigue to the... Uh, I mean, can you see this guy coming into Nineveh? Snow white. 
<laughs> I just I just can't imagine poor Jonah's thinking, oh, what else could happen? And and God's using all of this as a way of of uh, you know testifying to the message of Jonah. Well, he comes to Nineveh and he preaches the message. God is going to get you. He is going to destroy you. You are so wicked, he's had it. I'm sure Jonah embellished it richly and and made sure that they understood judgment is coming. And lo and behold, the Ninevites become terrified at the judgment of God and the, the king takes off his royal robes and puts on sackcloth and ashes. He proclaims a fast all over the area. He tells everybody to, uh, to put on sackcloth and ashes and to repent and cry out to God for mercy if perhaps God will be merciful to them and spare them. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. These horribly wicked Ninevites become convicted of their sin, they turn to God, they repent of their wickedness, they ask God for mercy and and for salvation, and they are redeemed. God spares them. He delays the judgment. And these people become believers in Jehovah. It's an amazing thing. And Jesus says, I tell you what, the the most wicked people on the planet repented when Jonah preached the message of God to them and someone greater than Jonah is here. I'm bringing you a more powerful and significant message. And that's about as good as you're ever going to (laughs) get. It's, you're not going to get a better sign than having me present. And one day, you're going to face the judgment, and when you do, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up and testify against you. That's kind of like Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story, because here's the New Testament evidence that in the judgment, the Ninevites of that period of time are going to be on the right side. They turned to God and were, were rescued and redeemed. They're going to testify against the Jews of Jesus' day that they are more wicked than they were. And they repented and they turned to God. And then he says, the Queen of the South, uh, she is also going to testify in the day of judgment against you people because... She heard about the wisdom of Solomon, and she came to see what it was all about. And if you read the account in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, the Queen of Sheba, or the Queen of the South, became a believer because she came and and heard the wisdom of Solomon and recognized that he was the servant of Jehovah and had been appointed by God. And uh, Solomon's wisdom was spread far and wide. If you wonder where Sheba was, I mean, the the best uh, estimate is that it was down um, across uh, the southern Arabian Peninsula and into that uh, segment of Africa that is today known as Yemen and Ethiopia. And Djibouti is right there on the 
you know, on the peak that enters into the Red Sea. And down in that region was the kingdom of Sheba. And the queen came from that area. They, by the way, have today, uh, not this day, but in our day, they have discovered the gold mine uh, or gold mines that they think were a part of her kingdom. And they've discovered deposits of gold there. She came all the way up through the Arabian Peninsula, all the way through the Sinai Peninsula, all the way up into Israel because she had heard about Solomon. And she wanted to see for herself. And as she listened to his wisdom, you read the account in 1 Kings chapter 10 and she says, you are so blessed and your people are so blessed. God's hand is upon you. God's wisdom is with you. Oh, to be just someone in your court that gets to hear you every day as you speak the wisdom and the glory of God. This is amazing. And as she talks, it's obvious that she has become a believer in Jehovah because of what she has seen in Solomon. And Jesus says, I tell you that she will rise up in the day and proclaim to you judgment in the day of condemnation because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and believed. And one greater than Solomon is here. The wisdom, the the perception, the insight, the depth that I bring to you is greater than Solomon. And you won't believe. And you're refusing my testimony. And then when you think about it, Jesus has just cast out a demon and a man who had not spoken, for all we know, his entire life, is talking and he's hearing and other demonized people have been delivered and the sick have been healed and even the dead have risen from the, from the death. And you, you have to ask yourself, how m- many miracles do you need? What kind of testimony does it take to convince someone of the truth? And now we're beginning to get underneath to the real problem. Do you remember, and let me kind of bring this back to us today. Do you remember the occasion after the resurrection of Jesus and Thomas? Jesus appears the first time in the upper room and Thomas is not present. And the disciples, he appears in the room, the doors are closed, the windows are closed, and all of a sudden Jesus is in their midst, and they recognize he has really risen. Just like Mary said, he is alive. And so when they find Thomas, they say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He has risen from the grave. We have seen him. And Thomas said, I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. I don't believe you at all. I don't know what you think you saw, but uh, ghosts, something, I don't know, whatever. But I'm not buying it. I'm done with this. I want no more to do with this. Well, the next time that they're in the upper room, Thomas is present. And just like before, Jesus shows up. Wow, here he is. And Jesus knows Thomas' thinking. And as he stands there, he says, Thomas, stretch out your hand and put your fingers in my nail print. Reach your hand and put it into my side. Touch me and check me out and see I'm not a ghost. 
I'm real flesh and blood. See for yourself, Thomas. And Thomas does not need at that point to reach forth his hand. He falls on his face before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. And he believes. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you believe today because you have seen me. But blessed are those who, not having seen me, believe. He's talking about us. He's talking about all the generations of Christians down through the years that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, never having seen him face to face. And we might ask ourselves the question, what can we know about God without actually seeing Him? What, what can we find out about Him? Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now look at that phrase because this is very important to the message this morning. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the condition of these people is ungodly. They're unrighteous. And because they are unrighteous, when they recognize the truth, they squash it down. They suppress it. They do not want to recognize it. It's not that they don't see it. It's that they refuse to acknowledge it. It's kind of like saying, if, if I deny it, it will go away. You know? Yes, I know there's an elephant in my living room, but if I pretend it's not there, it will go away. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Because God has made it evident to them. You see what's going on here? This is a transaction occurring between God and, and, and people. Individual people. What is known about God is evident to them because God has made it evident within them. He testifies to his own existence in the heart of every human being. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. You say, what can I know about God without a Bible? Well, you can know about His invisible attributes. Wisdom, righteousness, justice, truthfulness, judgment all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present. You can know about God's invisible attributes. 
you can learn about His eternal power and His divine nature. And not because it's veiled and obscured, but because it's clearly seen. It's like, open your eyes. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool. If you've got half a brain and one eye, you can see the truth. You can't deny it. It's unmistakable. You read scientists writing about evolution and, and that sort of thing, and they, they can't talk about it without assigning personality to Mother Nature. Mother Nature has design. Uh, do you know what you're saying? You're trying to tell me that Adam's by pure accident, occurred in reactions hitherto unknown, and this incredible degree of organization came out of it. Well, it's Mother Nature. Well, who is Mother Nature? And when did you meet her? And what does she look like? Because you can't even talk about this without assigning design and personality. It's obvious. Just read it. It's just, it's obvious. They know. They don't want to know, but they do know. They can't get around it. They cannot escape it. And when to the obvious is added the spoken message... And the revelation of the Holy Spirit, people must acknowledge the truth. Because God confronts them with it in their own heart. You notice that the people of Nineveh Nineveh repented, but they needed Jonah. That's an interesting thing. Because I acknowledge the eyes of Men and women are blind apart from God. We're lost in sin. We, we, we have scales on our eyes. The obvious is difficult to see because we live in darkness and we don't have light. But when the message comes, along with the accompanying witness of the Holy Spirit, the light comes on. The illumination is given. The eyes are open. People see the truth. It convicts their heart. Do you remember when you, the day that you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, do you remember that time? You may have been in the quiet of a lonely place of thought and meditation. You may have been talking to a friend who was sharing their testimony. You may have been in a church service and hearing a message. Do you remember how you felt like God was talking directly to you? How He was speaking to your heart, how He had put His finger on your need and was convincing you of His truthfulness. Do you remember that? 
There are people who say I felt like I was all alone in the room and God was talking right to me. As if to add an exclamation point to the statement, Dick Wright left the 8 o'clock service this morning on the way out and he said, I remember the day that I was sitting in the service and I thought I was the only one and God was, he said, I thought you were talking right to me and God was putting his finger on me. Because he does that. He does that. And the reality is, is that the Jews were seeing the truth and God was bearing witness to their heart and they did not want it. What would happen if they bowed the knee and followed Jesus? Their whole religious system would come unglued. Their political power would be lost. Their selfish ambition would be brought to nothing. Their acclaim and their popularity and their respect among the people, if they had any, but they thought they did, would be completely lost. They would have to admit they were sinners, that they needed to repent. Remember Jesus' statement? The, the man who was wretched and aware of his sin cries out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But these righteous Pharisees stand on the street corner and say, I thank God I'm not like these other dirty, rotten scum. And they would have to acknowledge that they were just like them. You see the problem here? Here's the truth. People, when they hear the truth and it bears witness to their heart, and it convicts them of sin, and they do not want to repent, look for ways to discredit the source. That Bible you people read, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. Jesus is just another religious leader teaching moral ideas that he's just like all the others. I don't believe that hogwash. We, didn't, we weren't made and designed by God. We, we just happened onto this planet. We can do whatever we want to do. We're the masters of our own destiny. They want to discredit the source. They want to undermine the truth. They want to deny the, 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 the voice of witness. And so the problem here with Jesus and this crowd is they are under conviction and they want to discredit Jesus. Prove to us. You know, the sad reality is that when he did give them the sign of Jonah, he came out of the grave. He left the tomb. The Roman guard that had been sent there to guard the tomb, lest the disciples steal the body, were there when this 
glorious and majestic angelic being rolled away the stone. And in terror and wonder and amazement, they looked into an empty tomb that had been unveiled by angelic power. And they came back to some of these very religious leaders and they said, This is what happened. They were terrified. They were terrified of God. And they were terrified of Rome. Because if they had lost their prisoner or failed their mission, they didn't just get their career aborted. They got put to death. These were tough people. They were the, the elite of the elite, the Marine Corps, the special forces of their day. These were tough people. And they didn't back down. And all of a sudden, they're standing before these religious leaders saying, This is what happened. And these Jews gave them money and said, you go, you go and say that the body was stolen. And if this comes to the uh, ears of your commanders, we'll smooth it over with them. What kind of hardness of heart does it take when you've had the proof of the resurrection by the testimony of undeniable witnesses and you pay them to shut up because you still don't want the truth getting out. Do you see the wicked and evil motivation of this generation that Jesus is is confronting? It's not that they need more evidence. He could give them all the evidence in the world. They just simply don't want the truth. They prefer to persist in their sin and believe the lies. And they want to discredit what they know in their heart is the absolute reality because they don't want to change. And friends, whenever you and I share the gospel today with people who bluster and throw up all kinds of problems and whatever. You can be sure when you're sharing the message of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in the heart. And at some level, they know. At some level, they know. And I'm also concerned about us when we hear the truth. At some level, we know what is true. The Holy Spirit confirms it in our heart. And the question is, do we look for ways to discredit the testimony, the witness, or are we willing to bend the knee like a Thomas and say, my Lord and my God, I believe. Father, I pray this morning that we would be a people that readily acknowledge the truth of your testimony and of your word. And that you would bolster our faith as we share our testimony that we have 
the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and that he is working alongside us always to testify in the heart of the truth. Lord, let us not be intimidated or fearful of those who discredit and seek to undermine the faith, knowing that in essence they are defeating themselves, and that one day even the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will stand and testify against them, that the truth was spoken and they suppressed it in unrighteousness. Give us hearts and eyes of faith to believe you. In Jesus' name, amen.